Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. This is part two of my interview with JFK expert Jefferson Morley. Let's let, let's kind of focus on Dallas um, for, for for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have two two kind of very unique things that I know that you've been over. I'm dying to get your uh, your, your take on this. Um, we have full video coverage of this assassination. It's there's full video coverage of this, and I correct me if I'm wrong. One of the motorcycle police um, officers inadvertently had their microphone open during the shooting. So yeah. based on the film and the audio evidence, there's always been this debate on number of shots, number of shots, number of shots. And, you know, shots two and three came right on top of each other. Any, I mean, are the scientists still disagreeing about this or is, is, is it leaning one way or the other? Um, so let me just to make it clear. So there's the Abraham Zabruder's film, which was taken from um, 50, 100 feet away, a very clear shot. Um, uh, and then there's a film taken by a man named Orville Nix, who was standing farther away, but following uh, uh, the motorcade and, 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 and his film depicts the assassination uh, as well, although not in much detail. And then, yes, one of the officers had their uh, 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 microphone open, and so the sound of the motorcade was recorded um, in real time. And it is said that those recording impulses uh, are consistent with five shots coming from two different directions. You know, the acoustic evidence, and this is this is trying to be very dispassionate about it. The acoustic evidence is difficult for a couple of reasons for me. One, you know, if you listen to the tape you can't hear those impulses. That is something that has been derived by acoustic scientists picking out of the, the static. So, you know, that, that, that alone means this is like, you sort of have to take this evidence on somebody else's trust. It's not self-evident, you know? That's the problem with, uh, yeah. with, the, with the acoustic evidence. Um, the acoustic evidence is very suggestive because the sound impulses um, on that film match very closely the sound impulses of an experiment done in Dealey Plaza uh, in 1978. Um, A very kind of clever experiment to recapture the sound of the gunshots and where they might have come from. So, uh, you know, I myself don't like to lean on the acoustic evidence because it's just its status as evidence is problematic. It's not clear cut. I'm not saying it's not true, but the debate about how it is true is incredibly complex. And it come, in the end, I think it comes down to some, just some judgment questions that are not really scientific. But I think that the, you know, more importantly is the Zabruder film evidence. You know, I mean, and, 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 and what your point that yes, this was, this was filmed, you know, that film was not seen in public. It was seen in public once in 1969 at the Garrison Club, but it wasn't seen in public until until February 19, uh, March 1975. So it was 12 years later that people actually got to see, you know, what was on Zabruder's film. And so, you know, in that time, that was a great favor to the government's version. You know, that the president had been hit by a shot from behind. That's what they said, and then. You watch the Zabruder film, and you know 
it sure looks like he's, that's somebody who was hit by a blow from the front. Now, there's, you know, there's theories about how you could be hit by a bullet from behind and your head would fly towards the bullet. And you know what? A crime scene is not a, a laboratory. You know, weird things happen when people get hit by bullets. Any cop will tell you that. Anybody who's experienced in crime scenes will tell you that. So, you know, there's just, there's just no telling. But the commonsensical, the most likely explanation, and one which has been endorsed by some physicists, is that the Zabruder film depicts a man being shot from the front. In addition, we have the testimony of the doctor who tried to save his life, Dr. Robert McClellan, um, who just died um, uh, 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 recently in the last couple of years. And a highly credible witness was a, a surgeon himself, 34 years old, assistant professor of medicine, went on to a long distinguished career. And he said, you know, he went in there and saw the president's wound. And, you know, he was standing over the table. He was, you know, two feet. From, from the president, watching the people trying to save him. He looks down to see the president's wound and he was sure the president had been shot from the front and had a blowout wound in the back of his head. So, you know, you've got this a brooder film and uh, you've got Dr. McClellan's testimony. You know, that's, that's pretty strong evidence um, in my book. Now, there's counter evidence and counter arguments. We can go into those, but it, it's not ridiculous on its front to say the president was shot from its front. I, I would say the preponderance of evidence suggests that that was the case. Did there was um, between pictures and, and video and, and, and eyewitness testimony, weren't there many people actually running towards the grassy knoll, pointing towards the grassy knoll um, immediately after the shooting? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So just for just for people who are unfamiliar, the grassy knoll is an area that was in front of the presidential motorcade. It was a grassy embankment in the park that the president motorcade was going through. And the reason we say, you know, why do we use that funny term, the grassy knoll? You know, why does that always come up in the, in the JFK discussion? Well, Merriman Smith was a UPI reporter who was in the presidential motorcade. He was a few cars back, combat veteran, very experienced reporter. Um, and he hears the shot. Uh, and he knows right away what's happening. He grabs the radio phone in the car and he calls the United Press International desk in New York. And, you know, he says, three shots fired at the presidential motorcade in Dallas, you know, more to come. And the car takes off following the, the, the president's limousine to the hospital. So UPI gets that report and they put it on the wire right away because Merriman Smith's their guy. You know, they can count them. They can take it to the bank. And so they start putting it out. And there's these initial reports, shots were fired at the president's motorcade he was believed he was injured. The first reports were very incomplete, but they came from Merriman Smith. The press car goes to the, goes to the hospital. They're taking the president out and Texas Governor John Connolly, who was also wounded in, in the gunfire, and they're taking him in to be treated in the, in, in, the, in the trauma rooms of the hospital. Merriman Smith runs in, he talks to a couple of Secret Service agents on the scene, goes to the payphones in the hospital, calls his desk again in New York, and dictates a second draft of his story. And in that story, he says, <clears throat> the president was struck by gunfire from a grassy knoll to which police to which policemen ran. Wow. So Merriman Smith coined the term grassy knoll Didn't within 30 minutes of the crime. Experienced reporter, high quality reporter, won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting that day. Wow. He spoke to eyewitnesses because he didn't quote the Secret Service agents by name, but he said he spoke to more than one of them who said the shots came from the front. 
And so that's why we talk about the grassy knoll. Again, that's credible evidence, right? I mean, highly trained observer, initial first reaction is, is always your most accurate, your most likely to be accurate, right? So Pulitzer Prize winning reporter says shots came, quoting sources who were there, says shots came from the front. That is also strong evidence. And yes, a lot of people did run there. I, I, I combed through the accounts of police officers who were there because I thought that was especially noteworthy, right? People who are not trained in law enforcement probably make a mistake or might well make a mistake, but people who were trained in law enforcement, where did they go? 21 cops, 21 different cops said they thought shots had come from the front. And uh, about 50 witnesses, testimony was compiled over the year, more than 50 said that they, sh they thought at least one shot had come from the front. So it wasn't something that somebody made up after the fact, there was substantial eyewitness and ear witness testimony that said, you know, that's what happened. And indeed, uh, 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 the Jesse Curry, the Dallas police chief, eventually came to that conclusion as well. So it wasn't it wasn't some fanciful thing that somebody made up. This is what law enforcement sources were saying. Unbelievable, just amazing, amazing stuff, Mr. Morley. Let's go to some viewer questions. Okay, that I've collected all week. Um, first one is um, Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was. was was this a mob hit? Was he was he a mobster? He was he he sounds it sounds like he has a pretty sinister background. He was not. He he ran a strip club. He was sort of a pathetic guy, um, <laughs> but um, but he was perfect for the mission that he was assigned because it was a chance to be somebody. And you know we don't know who told Ruby to do what he did, but um, he's like I was saying before. He, Ruby saved the U.S. government a world of trouble by killing Oswald. Oh yeah, he did. <laughs> and, 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 and and that is um, that tells you that the perpetrators might have been in the U.S. government because wow. the idea of Oswald on trial was so dangerous to so many people. Um, so uh, no, Ruby was not uh, was not an organized crime figure himself. He was responsive to organized crime figures, and his participation is in the in the whole story is an indication that you know there was a mafia element to the you know to, to November twenty second. Um, that doesn't mean that the mafia were the intellectual authors of the crime, but the fact that Ruby killed the prime suspect is pretty good, pretty good uh, you know indication that something was afoot. I should say on, on, on my website, on JFK Facts, I, I, got a, I got an email from a woman who said, my mother worked for Jack Ruby. And would you like to hear her story? Oh, wow. And I said, yeah, I definitely would. And so it was uh, a woman who, uh, she was a dancer, a burlesque dancer who worked this kind of, the circuit of strip clubs in the Southwest, Tulsa, Dallas, New Orleans, Galveston. And uh, so they would come to town, you know, once every two times a year. And uh, I checked this woman out and it, it was true. The women who worked in Jack Ruby's club, they, they've written memoirs and talked about their experience. And she was one of them. She that was definitely one of them. Her stage name was Gail Raven. And uh, Jack Ruby had it. So I corresponded through the daughter with the mother and um, asked her a few questions. And she said that Jack Ruby had a big crush on her and uh, you know was asking her to marry him. And she was like this 20 year old knock. And she was like, no, Jack, I'm not going to marry you. <laughs> you know, 
Um, but they were friends. She said, he, you know, he really cared about her and he tried to take care of her and she appreciated it. And so she went to see Ruby after he was arrested for killing Oswald. And so I said, well, why did your friend Jack kill Oswald? And so this woman said, and you can find this on the JFK facts if you search for Gail Raven. She said, you know, I don't think Jack had any choice. You know, everybody works for somebody, you know? And I think the people who Jack worked for, you know, told him he had to do it. Who did he work for? I said, she didn't know. But that was her impression, that, that Jack Ruby did not have a choice in this. He had to do this. And she knew him pretty well. So I thought that was very interesting evidence. And then the second thing she said was, he detested Bobby Kennedy, like all the mobsters. Yeah. <laughs> the attorney general was going after him. Well, you know, so if you detest Bobby Kennedy, right, why do you want to kill Lee Oswald? It's like, it's a non sequitur, you know, and it just shows that there were other agendas at work, you know, but the official theory, it, it just doesn't explain anything. Yeah. So that's why, that's why people don't believe it. That's why it's kind of useless in thinking about this story. It just doesn't, it doesn't explain what happened. Wow. All right. Another question. Um, single bullet theory. Has that been debunked at this point? Or do people still think the single bullet uh, theory uh, has, has legs? Uh, I don't think the single bullet theory is correct. And I mean, in my mind, it has been debunked. And in the minds, in the minds of a lot of people, you know, it's important to understand wh why we got the single bullet theory, because originally that was not the first story the American people were told. Yeah. The FBI said the first shot hit Connolly, the second shot hit, mm -hmm. hit Connolly in the back, the second shot hit Kennedy in the back, and the third shot hit Kennedy in the head. And that was the story. That was what the FBI report concluded. Um, the FBI, however, did not interview James Tang, who was a bystander who was standing down the street. And when the gunfire rang out, Tag was hit by something. And he turned around and he talked to people. And what had happened was a stray bullet had hit the curb where he was standing. He was standing down the street from Kennedy um, about you know, 15, 20, 30 feet. And a bullet had hit the curb and a piece of concrete had come up and hit him right in the face. And he had this cut on his face and he showed people and there was a picture in the paper, you know, so he was actually wounded very slightly, but he was actually wounded in the attack on the president. <laughs> okay, so now, well, if the first bullet hit Kennedy, the second bullet hit Kennedy, the third bullet missed and hit Tag, and the fourth bullet hit Kennedy in the head, that's four shots. That's four shots in less than seven seconds. And that was, that was utterly impossible with the rifle in Oswald's hand. So the Warren Commission, when Tag's testimony came forward, they had to deal with it. And so what they did was they came up with a single bullet there. They said, <laughs> no, 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 no. The first bullet went through Connolly, through Kennedy. The second bullet missed and hit Tag. And the third bullet hit Kennedy in the head. They, did, they weren't even that precise. They said, we don't know whether the first shot missed or whether the second shot missed. Incredible sloppiness. In, in a very important investigation. We actually can't tell you the sequence of the gunfire. Another reason why people find the story hard to believe. And so the story changed and the single bullet theory. So is it possible that a bullet penetrated Kennedy and penetrated? So that bullet caused seven, if that's true, that bullet caused seven wounds, right? A wound yeah. in the back of Kennedy, a wound in the front of Kennedy, a wound in the back of Connolly 
a wound in the front of, of Connolly. It comes out, goes into his wrist and comes out of his wrist. Seven, that bullet, if the single bullet theory is true, that bullet caused seven wounds. <laughs> so the bullet that they found and said that was that is not misshapen at all. The pristine bullet? Yeah, it's yeah. commission exhibit 399. So it's like, how does a bullet cause seven wounds and not get misshapen? <laughs> it's just it's just not credible i mean yeah. people say oh well it you know oliver stone you know in, in jfk they talk about the bullet changing direction in midair i mean it doesn't really line up you know it's not really possible stone might have exaggerated jim garrison might have exaggerated in that movie but it, it, it it's just not it's not it's not plausible and a lot of the of the doctor's testimony when they probed Kennedy's back wound, they couldn't tell that it went all the way through. And that was one of the things that they were prohibited from doing in the autopsy was usually they take a pointer, you know, for a, for a bullet wound that penetrates, they take a pointer and stick it into the wound and see where it comes out. And that tells you the bullet pain. They were not allowed to do that during the autopsy. So P Kennedy's back wound was never explored. And the, the testimony, the available testimony is the doctors did not think that that bullet wound went all through. The, the single bullet theory was invented later to rationalize those wounds and put them all together, but it, it's very contrived. It's just very contrived. And That's, so, yeah. you know, if you want to still believe in the single bullet theory, you know, it's kind of a willful suspension of belief. You know, it, it, requires, it requires a lot of intentional avoidance of evidence in order to come to that conclusion. Speaking of evidence, um, I've read some about this. I, I want to know wh where did President Kennedy's brain end up, and is it is it missing? Uh, it is missing. Um, how is that possible? Uh, how, how is it? Po I understand. I just <laughs> uh, uh, because of Bobby Kennedy. Um, so there's a couple of things to to um, to know about the story. So the president's brain was preserved. Um, and, uh, but the, the, the brain that was in possession of the National Archives after the autopsy um, weighed a certain amount. Um, of, I forget what the figures are, but let's say 1500 milligrams or something. Um, you know, such a large, and that's, that's the weight of a typical, you know, male human brain. Um, so much of Kennedy's brain was destroyed by the fatal shot. You know, it, it, it's just not possible that there was that much mass left left in the specimen that survived. So the question of, you know, what happened to the brain? One question is whether that the brain that was survived was even his. But then Bobby Kennedy took possession of it, and that's where it vanishes. And um, the best guess is that Bobby Kennedy disposed of it because he didn't want people. It was just too ghoulish wow. for him to be, you know, thinking that people might someday write about it. And so, um, you know, yeah, makes sense. May I yeah. get it? I get it. Okay. Uh, final question from our from our audience. This is interesting because I'd heard about. I had to look this up, and uh -huh. I, I looked it up this morning. The Babushka Lady. Listen, I I looked up Babushka Lady. Uh -huh. This person who appears to have a camera, right? Like Zapruder, we're talking has a front row seat to the shooting. 
I mean, front row seat. And it's my understanding she never came forward or somebody said somebody came forward, but they didn't buy her story. What is the story on that? Because that she was close. I mean, she was close to this assassination. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it's a great mystery. Nobody knows who the babushka lady was. But she called the babushka lady because she has a headdress yeah. which resembles a Russian woman's um, headdress. She does appear to have a camera. There's other people who have been identified in the crowd who have cameras who no photographs from that camera have ever surfaced. It's amazing. Um, uh, so um, just one of those imponderables. Unbelievable. Okay, let's let's transition and then we can wrap up. Um, I got a quote for you, Mr. Morley. Sure. A little incident down in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> who 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 was that? Was that Hoover and LBJ having a conversation? That uh oh, there's we got a little trouble in Mexico City, right? Well, the the the, the trouble starts when 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 uh, the CIA station in Mexico City reports that Oswald had visited um, the Cuban consulate and the Soviet embassy six weeks before the assassination. And they had been, he had been picked up by the CIA surveillance network, audio and, and photo, um, because they watched everybody who went into those offices. Yeah. Um, and uh, so um, there was a tape of somebody on the phone um, calling himself Oswald. The CIA did have possession of that tape. They denied it at the time, uh, saying that the, the tape had been erased, um, which was not true. And Goodpasture, who, who was the deputy for the station there, uh, told me personally in an interview that she had made a copy, what she called a dub, of the, of the Oswald tape because he was a person of interest. Yes, they did recycle the tapes and reuse the tapes, but on, on cases that are people of special interest, like Oswald, they made a copy right away for the file. So it wasn't erased, despite what the official story said. So um, they send tapes to, uh, they send an FBI agent from Mexico City to the border to meet another FBI agent who takes the tape, flies back to Washington. Hoover calls Johnson and says, you know, we got the uh, we got this guy on the tape, but it's not. We're not sure that it's Oswald. And so, Hoover himself raises the possibility that he had imitated or impersonated Oswald in Mexico City, and that that you know has remained part of, of the story ever since. They backtracked and said, "Oh no, we never got a tape." And um, uh, the conversation that between Johnson and Hoover about this. That tape was also erased inexplicably. We have a transcript of that, but we don't have the tape itself. Um, so, you know, these were radioactive secrets at the time and the government was trying to hide it. And the best way to hide it was to put this cover story on top, which said one man alone and unaided killed the president for no reason. And another guy killed that guy because he felt like, and that's the story. Believe us, please believe us. We're respectable, good people. You're, we're the president, we're the director of the FBI. Just believe us. And, you know, at that time, that worked. You know, people were in shock. J. Edgar Hoover was a hero. Johnson had, a, you know, had his hands full being a new president. You know, people wanted to believe. And, you know, they were being lied to on a massive scale. And we're still living with that legacy now. That's incredible. Tell our audience, what's a 201 file? And Oswald had a 201 file now, didn't he? 
Yeah, a 201 file is, is actually a nomenclature used across the federal government. Um, it's a basic personality file, is typically another name for it. And so at the CIA, when there's somebody, a personality of interest, you open a 201 file on him. And that doesn't mean he or she is part of your operation, doesn't mean he's a spy, just means somebody you're interested in for whatever reason. Maybe you want information from them, maybe you want help from them, maybe you suspect them of being a bad guy, whatever it is, if, once the agency gets a certain amount of information, and they typically they had like a three document rule or a five document rule. If you had five documents on somebody, that was good enough for a, for a 201 file. That was enough. So that, and that might be, a, the document might be a newspaper clipping. Like in Oswald's 201 file, there were newspaper clippings about his defection to the Soviet Union. But Oswald definitely had a 201 file as an as, as a, as a ex-Marine who had a security clearance. Um, you know, he was an object, an immediate obvious object of intelligence interest. So, um, but what's interesting about Oswald's 201 file, and this is part of the story of his manipulation is, they didn't open the 201 file for a year. Oswald defects in October of 1959, and the CIA takes note of him in 1959. There's a story in the Washington Post, a little post about a, a Marine defecting to the Soviet Union, and um, they open a file on him, but it's not a 201 file. The Oswald's first file was opened up by the CIA's Office of Security. And this Office of Security is like the internal police force of the CIA. And their job is fairly mundane. They <clears throat> make sure that you know your desk is locked up at night and they make sure that the records are shredded and they vet you know, people who are gonna work for the CIA. So the CIA opens a, an office of security file in Oswald, not a 201 file. Well, why would they do that? That was probably because like I said before, they were looking for moles and they thought Oswald might be of interest to a mole. And the office of security was involved in mole hunting, just like Angleton's people in that special investigations group. So the special investigations group holds the Oswald file under the auspices of the office of security for a year from November, 1959 to November, 1960. And then in November, 1960, after they've got five or 10 documents about Oswald, they finally opened the 201 file. So Oswald's file was handled very carefully from the beginning. And the fact that they didn't open up a 201 file for a year, very unusual. So Oswald has a special status within the CIA from the start. He is watched especially closely from November 1959 to November 1963. And then in 1963, the CIA says, ah, we never heard of this guy before. <laughs> He just slipped past us. We know nothing about him, which was, you know, pretty much of a lie. They knew a lot about him. Yeah. But they pulled the wool over the eyes of the Warren Commission. And it wasn't until, really, it wasn't until the 90s when we had the releases from Oliver Stone's movie that we got a fairly complete paper trail of the pre-assassination Oswald file. And it's very revealing. Oh, senior CIA officers watch this guy go to Dallas. That's the, probably the simplest way to put it. They watched him every step of the way, and he wound up in Dallas killing the president. That's absolutely incomprehensible. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 so, and so, you know, this is the plain record. And so the way that the defenders of the official theory, you know, deal with it is they say, you're a conspiracy theory. 
well, you know, you're not talking to me because I don't have a conspiracy theory. I've been writing about this for 30 years. So your criticism is, it's irrelevant to what I'm talking about. And, you know, and so then, you know, people have just decided, look, you know, I'm not, I want to believe my government. You know, that's a natural impulse. I, I sort of sympathize with it. I want to believe the government works, it's honest, you know. But the, the evidence just doesn't allow you that, you know, that conclusion in Kennedy's assassination. The story is disturbing, even if we don't know it in its entirety yet. That's absolutely incredible. Related question, and I have it up on my monitor right here because I was reading back through it this morning. Who is Jane Roman? And describe your interview with her. Um, and then she wasn't very happy with you uh, after that interview, now was she? <laughs> yeah. So, so when the when the JFK new JFK records began to come out in 1993, I immediately started going through looking for interesting stories, and I asked for the pre-assassination Oswald because I always thought, how was it that this guy was so you know defector to the Soviet Union? Like, what did people think of him inside the CIA? I was not trying to concoct a CIA did it theory. I just wanted to hear what did somebody you know what would somebody say and so. On this October 10th, 1963 memo that was released for the first time in 1993, there's a list of CIA personnel who are on there. And most of them were, were code names. And so you, you, you couldn't figure out who they were, but there was one named Jane Roman. And I recognized the name because Howard Roman had been a deputy to Alan Dulles. He helped Alan Dulles write his books. He was a career CIA officer. And I wondered if Howard Roman wasn't related to Jane Roman, and she was. He was. Jane Roman was Howard Roman's wife. And she was a CIA officer too. And she worked for Angleton. She was Angleton's, you know, right-hand man or right-hand woman. She was the liaison officer between the counterintelligence staff and the rest of the federal government. So if Angleton, the counterintelligence chief, wanted to talk to an FBI agent or, you know, a state person or whoever, those communications went through Jane Roman. She prepared them, she sent them out, she answered them, you know. So he's handing, handling a very key function for, you know, one of the top two or three men in the yeah. CIA. And so there's her name on the thing. So uh, I think, who, you know, who is she? So I started searching um, real estate records in DC and, and Virginia. And I find, I, I didn't find her home address, but she had, <laughs> She had co-signed for a loan on her daughter's uh, apartment. And uh, so she showed up on, in mortgage rent. And so I found her and I called her and I said, would you sit for an interview? I have these documents. And she said, yeah. And so I went there with John Newman, uh, who is a JFK researcher, former army intelligence officer, very savvy observer of the JFK story from through the lens of an intelligence analyst and, and official. And uh, we questioned her about this, about this cable that was written about Oswald on October 10th, 1963. And uh, she had signed off on it. She, it's, she had signed off on a draft of it. So what had happened was Oswald had shown up in Mexico City. He'd been picked up by the surveillance. The Mexico City station had heard his name on the audio. And they said, there's this guy, Lee Oswald in Mexico, you know, who is, and so they went and they went to his 201 file and they look and there's a ton of stuff in his 201 file. They have like, there's about 40 documents in there. And, and Jane Roman has signed for the Oswald file. 
she signed she signed for the most recent reports on Oswald about when he got arrested in New Orleans fighting with the Cubans. So they were very well informed about Oswald. And so we asked her, you know, what was going on here? And she said several very interesting things that this was a sign of keen interest in Oswald, um, held on a need to know basis. That language implies an operation. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, she said that um, uh, uh, she didn't deny that she had signed it. Um, we pointed out to her that um, in the cable, the cable that went out, that went to Mexico City, there was a line at the end which said, the latest headquarters information that we have on Oswald was that he returned from the Soviet Union in June, 1962. So she's writing a cable in October of 1963 saying, we, last we heard this guy returned from the Soviet Union. He's grown up a little bit um, and, uh, uh, you know, and it was sort of reassuring about him. Now, she had the cable about his arrest in October 63. So the most recent information about him was not 17 months old. It was like two weeks old. And so wow. we said, what is this? Um, and she said, well, yeah, maybe I, I'm signing off on something that I know isn't true. Now, I don't think, I think that we pointed that out to Jane Roman and she did not know it at the time. Mm -hmm. I think she wrote a draft and that line might not have been in the draft that she wrote, right? That could have been written by, there's a very complex procedure where other people have to approve the final text of a CIA cable as it goes out. One person has to authenticate it and another person has to approve it. It's a very demanding process before anything goes out. And Jane Roman wasn't one of those two people. She was just preparing the draft. So she might not have been wittingly lying, but she said when looking at the record, maybe I'm signing off on something. I'm signing off on, on something I know isn't true. And so, you know, Oswald, the point of the story is that that cable is not proof of a conspiracy. It's proof that information about Oswald was held very closely and very tightly at the highest levels of the CIA. Wow. And that's, you know, that's indisputable. And people, you know, who believe the official theory, they've stopped arguing with me because <laughs> when I say this is the case, they don't have anything to say. They, there's yeah. no counter argument. They can't say it's not true. Yeah. They know it's true. They just can't explain it. And so they say, you're a conspiracy theorist. So, so what we're looking at here, based on our discussion today, particularly with the, with the CIA, this is either gross incompetence or it's it's something far more sinister, right? I mean, how can you be that incompetent? I I, I mean, I, that's the question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't believe the. I mean, if we had the entire record, if there was nothing secret, then I think the incompetence argument would be. I mean, I would listen yeah. to it. Sure. But if you're saying we're totally incompetent and we have to keep all this stuff hidden. That's not tenable. That's not plausible. There's no reason. There's no reason that we should believe the incompetence argument while there's still a secrecy argument. So, um, uh, yeah, we're left with this possibility of something, you know, much more sinister. You know, and then the, then the question is, you know, so like a, a friend of mine said, you know, Jeff, maybe, maybe we don't want to know, you know, like yeah. and in, in the recent political environment that we've had, you know, President Trump has been at war with the CIA. So, you know. If you're like taking a shot at the CIA, are you on Trump's side? You know, Trump had a stupid conspiracy theory. So 
if you want full disclosure from the CIA, you know, are you in league with Trump? You know, the politics are very, you know, sketchy and I, I, I don't really like to get involved in them. One yeah, of the nice yeah. things about the JFK story is I find people who are interested in it from across the political spectrum, libertarian right, radical left, moderate center. Yeah, and you know, when we talk about the JFK assassination, none of that makes any difference. We don't argue about that other stuff. We respect our differences because we care about this thing, you know? And that's not, that's not that, that I think liberal people, especially about Kennedy, but you know, people on the right are very worried about the CIA and a very powerful government, you know? So a lot of people come to this story with passion and conviction that's reasonable, you know, that's legitimate. And, and, that, and that goes across the political spectrum. So um, I try not to get involved in the politics. You know, the fact is this is our history and yeah. we deserve to have, there's no reason why we shouldn't have our history. Just because it's gonna embarrass somebody at the CIA, that's not a good enough reason. I completely concur. Um, did you watch, I watched on YouTube, uh, Peter Dale Scott's lecture, essentially comparing JFK to 9-11. Have you seen that? Uh-huh. it's pretty interesting because essentially what do i think of that yeah he because he, he said like this is the same story like it's the same story you know intelligence breakdowns fbi is not talking to the cia cia is not talking to the fbi it's like you go back to 63 it's the same story isn't it uh well sort of <laughs> if, uh, no no I, I mean i don't think it's the same story in that i don't think we know who killed kennedy I yeah. think we do know who the intellectual authors of 9-11 were, yeah. right? 9-11 was a conspiracy. It was a conspiracy dreamed up by this guy, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. It was bankrolled by Osama bin Laden. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed recruited most of the hijackers. They were in his family and friends. They were on film. They said they did it. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's on Guantanamo now. He said, I did it. I planned it. They tortured him. He said, I did it. I planned it. Yeah. To me, there's not much doubt about them. I mean, there are there were some curious screw ups by the CIA and the FBI. But I think that those screw ups hide the intellectual authors of the crime. That's not the case with JFK. All right, let's wrap this up. Let, let's, let's just wrap this up and talk about um some of your, you know, your two, the two books I had read recently, um, the, the ghost is ex exceptional. Um, mm -hmm. uh, James Jesus Angleton. I mean, what talk about a character. I mean, this guy, um, I, I read that somewhere, you know, he's either a genius or a paranoid drunk or maybe a little bit of, of both. Um, but he yeah, was like I, the first mole hunter, right? Yeah. James Angleton was chief of the first chief of counterintelligence for the CIA a brilliant, strange man, probably undone late in his career by alcoholism, um, uh, which made his paranoia worse, um, but a very original mind. Um, everybody who worked with him spoke of that. Um, his colleagues talked about his operational genius. Um, so he was very powerful, very, very sinister figure for the first 25 years of the CIA. And the ghost tells his story. And the interesting thing about that, the book, I think, is that Angleton's influence was very wide, and it wasn't just limited to the mole hunt, although that was the story that most people knew, but helping Nazis escape from Germany after the war, uh, the MK Ultra mind control experiments Angleton had a hand in, 
Wow. So a wide ranging influence. I, I describe him as the most powerful unelected official in the US government in this period. And you know, at any given time, he might not have been, but the fact that he was <coughs> counterintelligence chief from 1974 to 1974, he lasted in such a powerful position for so long in the CIA. So really what, what, I, what I've done, Bill, is I'm finishing a trilogy, a trilogy of spies. So Our Man in Mexico, the story of Wynne Scott, the station- Love that book, love that in, book. In Mexico City is the first in the trilogy. The Ghost, the story of James Angleton, Counterintelligence Chief is the second. And then I'm gonna publish next year the third uh, installment called Scorpion's Dance. And it's the story of Richard Helms, who was CIA director and friends with Wynne Scott and Jim Angleton, close friends with both of them, um, and also became director of the CIA. And so it's a trilogy of spies, a three, three of the most powerful men in the CIA in its first 25 years. And uh, that will be out next June in time for the 50th anniversary of Watergate. Uh, the largest subject of the book is the CIA and Watergate. So that's coming soon. <laughs> I, I, I cannot wait uh, to, get, to get my hands on that. Jefferson Morley, thank you so much for participating in our podcast. What a great, I mean, I could stay up all night and talk to you about this so, stuff. Um, uh, thank you for the time. If people are interested in getting in touch, yes. you can contact me through JFK Facts. Um, editor at jfkfacts.org is my email. Be glad to answer questions um, and talk more about it. Um, explore the site. It's going to be updated and uh, uh, kind of given a new look soon. Um, and we're going to be covering uh, this, you know, what will happen with the JFK files later this year and President Biden. So if you're interested in the subject, check us out at jfkfacts.org. Okay, last question. I, I said last question, but I, I, this time I really mean it. Like, what are you dying to know? What, what, do, what do you think's in there? I mean, what's the, <laughs> what do you... What are you dying to know? And hopefully President Biden uh, helps you out. There's got to be something in there that has got to be the aha moment, right? I mean, um, what are you dying to know? Uh, there's a couple of things that, I'm, that are things that are known to exist uh, that have never come out. Um, a whole bunch of records that I saw in my lawsuit, Morley versus CIA. Yeah. I got a lot of material and I, there was other things that were identified but they were not released in any form. And I think some of the details about CIA operations involving Oswald in 1963 oh, yeah. are in this file. So I, I, I think that they could be very revelatory if, if, if Biden goes public. Another, another, there's a fascinating document out there, which is another tape recording. Really? In 2011, a tape recording of the transmissions made to Air Force One on November 22nd, as the plane flew back from Dallas with the president's body was made public. It was found at an estate sale in suburban Philadelphia. And it was in the <clears throat> effects of uh, uh, General Chester Clifton, who was a military aide, one-star general. And he was kind of Kennedy's assistant on military matters. He had died a few years before and he put this tape out and so the, the, the fact that there was tape recording on the Air Force One was known, and there was a copy of the tape on the LBJ library website. Um, but the version that surfaced in 2011 was about 20 minutes longer. 
wow. which indicated a couple of things. One, that the version that was on the LBJ library had been edited, right? Because this material wasn't on there. Second thing was it showed, the new tape showed that Curtis LeMay, a bitter critic of Kennedy, cut short a hunting trip in Michigan, returned to Washington and attended Kennedy's autopsy. Now remember what Jim Garrison found, the generals controlled the autopsy. One of the generals who hated Kennedy was made a point of getting to that autopsy. That's what the new tape showed. I did a forensic analysis of that tape or gave it to an acoustic expert. And he said, this tape, talking about the Cl General Clifton's tape, has been edited five times and oh. he could tell, he could tell. So, he said, so there are five different places where we know that this version has been edited from the LBJ version, but we know that this version was taken from an even longer tape. So the original Air Force One tape from November 22nd, 1963 has never surfaced. And I believe the reason it has never surfaced is because the generals were trying to figure out how do we respond to this assassination? And if and when that tape surfaces, I think we will have a lot more clarity about the JFK story. Wow. That tape, you know, it existed at one point. I've so, taken up um, too I've taken up too much of your time. <laughs> uh, thanks for the opportunity to do it. Uh, you know, let me know when the posted version comes through and I'll Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And we'd love to have you back on after uh, after October and then uh, with the release of your new book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when the book comes out and I should say um you know JF, the JFK story was a subtext in the Watergate era. Oh, you know, people were, were worried even then about what might be disclosed, and that and that motivated you know Richard Nixon and Richard Helms and others. So, the the subtext of JFK in the Watergate era that's kind of the, one of the themes of the book. Cannot wait to hear it. Thank you so much, Jefferson Morley, to our audience. Thank you for sitting through this long podcast. Certainly <laughs> worth it. We will see you next time. Thank you, Bill.